Welcome to Sitting Askew. This is where we discuss news from Armenia, Azerbaijan, Turkey, and the wider region from an honest, critical, and historically comprehensive perspective. We challenge issues that are ignored, abused, and manipulated by nationalist narratives. This is the place where we say, Let's sit askew, speak straight. Eğri oturalım, düzgün konuşalım. Ari tsurunastank, duzhosank. Gelin ey oturaq, düz danışaq. So today, my guest is my friend Sako. Um, Sako, would you just very briefly introduce yourself, please? Sure. I'm uh, I'm kind of all over the place. I'm a I am not currently going to school, but my intellectual interests are history, philosophy, uh, religion, and uh, <laughs> ever since. Uh, Ever since the latest uh, Artsakh war, it's uh, geopolitics and military. Okay, okay. A man of my tastes. I'm also into philosophy, history, and everything you mentioned. Probably not military so much. <laughs> I am. Uh, <laughs> I would I'd safely say that I'm pretty anti-militant. Not that I don't appreciate the need for a military. I don't appreciate the need for self-defense. Uh, However, I find most militaries are used for offensive actions and conquests and very corrupt purposes and not for self-defense. But that's besides the point. Um, actually, it's not besides the point. It's very related to what we were speaking about. And we were speaking about uh, the security and safety of Armenia. And you were expressing kind of a hesitancy, a, a distrust for any kind of normalized relations with Armenia and Turkey or Armenia and Azerbaijan in particular. Um, you don't see within our generation a future where we have normalized open borders like we did during the Soviet Union and uh, most states do if they have normalized relations. You don't see anything like that happening um, within our lifetimes. Why is that? Do you think that's really feasible? And do you think in the long run this benefits um, Armenia? Well, um, for starters, I'd like to I mean, I'd like to say, like, it all depends on what you mean by normalized. So, as I mentioned before, one of the things that I, one of the things that I kind of differ on when it comes to to most fellow Armenians is my willingness to come to some kind of compromise and deal. Like, when it comes to geopolitics, I look at it in a very ultra-pragmatic business standpoint so i'm not against um i'm not against opening borders and i'm not against um you know negotiations or whatever but as it stands right now like i i'm not you know i'm not gonna get into the blame game uh of like who started it and who did this and who did that but as it stands right now for all for all intents and purposes um Turkey and Azerbaijan are hostile nations and I don't see that changing anytime soon but 
I do think that, at least from a geopolitical standpoint, there are things that could be done to mediate and kind of take some of that heat off of ourselves. And part of that is, um, you know, op- opening up borders and, uh, you know, well, whether we, um, <laughs> whether we like it or not, uh, Azerbaijan has railway access to Nakhichevan. That's part of the ceasefire agreement. And uh, in the interest, in our geopolitical interests, um, I would not recommend attempting to change that at all because it's too dangerous. It, it gives too much of a cassius belly for further aggression. But I do believe we should do everything in our power to fight the implementation of a corridor because that was not part of the ceasefire agreement. And they're and they're pushing things too far. In regards to like normalizing relations, I meant I'm all for normalizing relations in terms of um, economic, you know, trade, commerce, and things like that. What I meant is where I am cynical is in terms of uh, like intercultural relations and um, whether it's possible for our meet for any kind of like emotional or like friendly reconciliation between Armenians, Turks, and Azeris. That's where I'm, where my cynicism lies. So there, there's two different things here. You can say that you don't see it happening, and you can say that you don't want it to happen. Um, if I, if I were to guess, I would think you meant the first one. But do you potentially mean the second one that you don't want it um, to happen? I want it to happen, but uh, well, I mean. Okay, I want it to happen, and um, as you know, as an indication that I want it to happen, there was a you know, my idea for the Caucasus history uh, textbook project, which we'll get into later on for the audience. But um, yes, I do want it to happen, but I don't see it happening. And for my part, I have to admit, I especially with with things as as amped up as they are right now for my part i don't trust them like when i say them i don't mean all turks and ozities i mean i mean the people who are in charge that 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 propagate you know i'm glad you said that that's that's exactly the point i was wanting to make um in order for trust to build up in order for that to occur, you need long-term normalized contact between the two peoples. Um, if you imagine, and I know a lot of Armenians might think this way as well, but if you imagine that trust can be built up simply by having a closed border with no contact, on the contrary, not only does that not build trust, it builds mistrust and and distrust because people use that opportunity to create a fantasy of the other side people use that opportunity to tell tales of how evil the other side is and it's so good that we don't have any contact with them because they would just immediately try to slaughter us um the the fact that we've lived in this existence for the last 30 years this is what we've lived for the last 30 years there hasn't been uh normalized contact along the Armenia and Azerbaijan border. And the fairy tales have been built up. The fairy tales of the evil Armenian, 
the fairy, fairy tales of the evil Turk have been all heightened because of this isolation. So when you say you don't trust the other side and that's the reason you don't want to open the border, I would argue that's exactly the reason you need to open the border. So that very slowly you start chipping away at that mistrust. Very slowly you have people normally crossing the border and oh my God, they didn't get attacked. They weren't killed, right? People treated them normally. They were able to trade their goods and buy their goods and, and you know, they, they didn't lose their life in the process. That's the only way to build trust. And I don't think you can do that behind a closed border. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, I am in favor of opening up the borders. That, like I said, I have a very business-oriented outlook on things. Like, like yeah, there, there needs to be economic trade relations. There needs to be, you know, open borders and, and, and you know, a degree of normalization of the relations. But I, like I said, where I, where I said where i said my my lack of trust lies is when it comes to the area of goodwill in other words i think that absolutely you know there needs to be negotiation and very shrewd negotiation with with turkey and azerbaijan on our part but um <clears throat> i think it needs to be done very very cautiously um it, it is all i'm saying like i don't think we're at a place yet where where we can rely on their goodwill yet. So, there is no goodwill. I'm completely exactly exactly either exactly. side. <laughs> Armenians don't have goodwill to Azerbaijan or Turks. Azerbaijanis don't have goodwill towards <laughs> Armenians. I don't deny this whatsoever. I'm completely with you on that. I mean, yeah, just the, the reality the, the, on the ground. The <laughs> war last year, the post-war period. They all show that there is absolutely no goodwill whatsoever between the two sides. Um, but nonetheless, I think even in an environment of no such goodwill, um, very reasonable, humane, and peace-building agreements can be reached. Um, an environment of normalization can at least begin, if not finalize or take material shape anytime soon, it could at least begin and set the groundwork for this throughout the years to kind of solidify and become uh, the status quo instead of a war yeah. status quo. Um, and that process has not begun. This has, had, this has been my main frustration with the post-war period is that we are still not building that normalization process. We are still not on that road whatsoever. We're still on the same road that we've been on for the last 30 years in the frozen conflict. And I don't see any kind of change in that attitude anytime soon. I just see more suffering. Whereas maybe in the previous 25 years, the majority of suffering was Azerbaijanis. Today, the majority of suffering is Armenians. But nonetheless, it's, it's kind of pointless to compare who's been suffering more anyway. Just the fact of the matter is that Azerbaijan has the resources and means to make Armenia suffer more than the other way around. And this is why I think it's yeah. much more important that we need to we need to consider this and we need to have an urgency much more than they do about normalizing relations. Um, if you want to say anything more on that, please go ahead. But otherwise, I wanted to address 
the idea of um, the November 9th agreement and the reestablishment of trade and contacts as specified there. Um, anything else um, further on that or shall we move on? Well, um, where, I'm, where I'm coming from is, let's say, let, let's say in a hypothetical scenario, if I was in charge of the country. Um, and I mean, it's hypothetical for now, but one of my goals is eventually to take a leadership position in the country. So this is very relevant to me. Where I would, ne- where I would negotiate is, uh, above all, the thing that I would emphasize in any negotiation that I'd participate in is making sure that, that for every concession we make, we get something that is worth the concession we made. And so what I'm really trying to kind of learn and gather through following, you know, through reading, learning, studying geopolitics very intently and learning about like some of the great um, diplomats throughout history is how to successfully negotiate things in a way that is um, that is uh, favorable to both sides and does not put us in a position of vulnerability to be at the mercy of either Turkey or Azerbaijan. So if I was in negotiations, I would pretty much be like on full guard mode to the extent like I would take everything they said with a huge lump of salt. (laughs) Like, like... uh, But they should also take everything that we say with a huge lump of salt. Yeah, you know, and and you know what, look, I I don't, I don't hate them. There are Armenians still who, who believe that an occupation of Azerbaijan is justified. There are Armenians still who would like to conquer all the way to the Kura River, if not Baku, there are still very radical Armenian elements as well. So let's not, uh, let's not act like there aren't these belligerent kind of militant elements within our side. There, there clearly are. They're very destructive. Um, and much of what they see on the Azerbaijani side are these types of fringe figures. As we often see their fringe, although I would argue a lot of their fringe is um, kind of built in to the leadership of Azerbaijan as it exists today under the authoritarian rule of um, Ilham Aliyev. He loves to placate to irredentists. He loves to speak the language of pseudo-historians and ultra-nationalists. So it's kind of built in there. Um, There were times where even Nikola Pashinyan was trying to placate and play into ultra-nationalist elements within Armenians. It resulted in a massive failure where some of his words and actions instigated the beginning of this second war. Um, yeah. But nonetheless, I, I don't think he holds the same position anymore. I think he has kind of reverted to a much more constructive, much more in line with international norms and territorial integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't see Aliyev doing any of that. Uh, so anyway, well, my yeah. point was, yeah, 
lumps of salt all around. <laughs> but I stress <laughs> again, I stress yeah. again. Well, well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's, there's, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's, there's kind of mistrust all around. Like, I can understand why they wouldn't trust us, and I don't trust them. So I would just, uh, <laughs> I would totally understand like shrewd negotiating all around. Like, like, one okay. One thing that I would probably negotiate is, um, like, okay, for example, let's say I was, um, I was negotiating with, uh, <laughs> okay, whatever. But I really hope I'm not shooting myself in the foot for saying what I'm about to say, like in terms of my future <laughs> political aspirations. But I see, I see, um. Uh, uh, I see Artsakh as a ball and chain around the ankle of Armenia proper, and it needs to be cut. I uh, yeah, according to Ilham Aliyev, the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and status question has been settled. Yes, that chain has now been cut. It's no longer an issue concerning Armenia. The issue has been given to Russia, as Russia is the peacekeeping force in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, so much of what the potential status quo currently is, is very similar to what you're describing. It was a ball and chain that has now been severed and cut. Nonetheless, there are people on the Armenian side who, with even the chain cut, are concerned and really honestly obsessed with the issue uh, and status of Nagorno-Karabakh. Not that the people there, you know, aren't in danger and shouldn't have their security and well-being thought over. Uh, mm. Who else better to think over that them than uh, yeah. kinsmen in I, Armenia? Nonetheless, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Go right. Ahead. Go ahead. I, I think. Um, I think in order to, um, I think in order to kind of greater, you know, like a in, greater secure the uh the diplomatic position of armenia proper i think more of an explicit um more of an explicit i guess separation between armenia and Artsakh interests needs to be articulated like like for example if they haven't already done it yet i think there should be an open renunciation of armenia being Artsakh's security guarantor and basically, basically the position, if I was in charge, the position I would take is, is Artsakh is its own kind of independent movement and, uh, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with you guys, but we have our own problems now. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I think that it... separation should be made more explicit because sure. I don't want to leave any room I wouldn't want to leave any room for them to use Artsakh against uh, Armenia to, um, to, like, to endanger our, our security. That's why, like, um, that, that yeah, that separation should be more made more ex uh, explicit because I think what ideally should be done is. Um, kind of abandoning the rest of Artsakh to the Russians and leaving that to them and kind of get basically focusing on, I, I think the number one focus of our negotiation should be 
making sure that we're not forced to concede to a corridor. Like okay. nothing, so, nothing more, n- n- nothing more than the railway that was agreed in the ceasefire. Okay, so perfect, perfect segue. Here we go. <laughs> you yeah. you speak of a railway, and I think I've heard this mentioned in Armenian circles elsewhere as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact of the matter is, the November 9th agreement doesn't specify a railway. I'm actually going to read point number nine of the terms of the agreement. Okay. And that specifies what is to be there. It says, number nine, all economic and transport connections in the region shall be unblocked. The Republic of Armenia shall guarantee the security of transport connections between the western regions of the Republic of Azerbaijan and the Nakhchivan Autonomous Republic in order to arrange unobstructed movement of persons, vehicles, and cargo in both directions. The Border Guard Service of the Russian Federative Security Service. Sorry, let me retake that. The Border Guard Service of the Russian Federal Security Service shall be responsible for overseeing the transport connections. Once again, that means that vehicles as well as cargo on trains shall be going in both directions. Armenia agrees that the people who are uh, transporting in such a way are guaranteed security while they do this. Um, and they are unobstructed. That's also very important. They can't be obstructed in this process. So they can't be stopped while they are transporting across Armenian territory. This, uh, I argued elsewhere, um, leaves kind of a, a vague question in terms of will they be subject to border regulations and custom regulations on the Armenian border? In my interpretation, they will be. They are unobstructed once they enter Armenia's territory, not at the gates. But much of this language, the problem with much of this language is that it's very vague. It's very preliminary. This is why Armenia and Azerbaijan need to sit down and hammer out details and not just go on this very vague and preliminary wording but they're not doing any of that. They're just continuing mm. with their nonsense. Um, and then the last yeah. point is that the border guard service of the Russian uh, Federal Serv- Security Service will be responsible for overseeing the transport connections. Again, that language is very vague. It could mean that Armenia is full control of the process. Russia just oversees it to make sure that Armenia commits to what is agreed. Mm-hmm. Um or, according to some interpretations emanating from Azerbaijan, it may mean that it is Russia that controls the roads that go across the Armenian southern border, and therefore they oversee it by having direct control. Again, all of this is very up in the air and needs to be hammered yeah. out with a very vague and, and, language. Yeah. And, and a corridor would imply either Turkish or Azadi control. So it? corridor is very bad wording. You and I both agree to this. There is no reference to a, a corridor in the agreement. A corridor was never mentioned. A corridor cannot exist because a corridor also implies, as you said, some kind of legal obligation or legal ownership over the connecting roads between Nakhchivan and the rest of Azerbaijan over Armenian Mm. territory. So yes, I agree. 
we should not call it a corridor. It is not a corridor. There are no implications of any kind of control by Azerbaijan or anyone else. If anything, the, the most that we get is an overseeing role of the uh, Russian border service. And that's about it. Um, yeah. The Russian border service is already active in Armenia by agreement. The Russian border <laughs> service actually controls that border with Iran on the south side. So it's not mm-hmm. like there aren't Russian border guards already there. They're there already. They're guarding the border with Iran, although you know there isn't much to guard as Armenia and Iran have very friendly relations. Uh, the agreement still specifies that whatever um, international borders that Armenia used to have as part of the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation agrees to guard those borders. Namely, those are the borders with Turkey and the border with Iran. It does not guard the border with Azerbaijan itself. But, um, yeah, that is, as I said, something that would need to be hammered out as to what happens when someone enters from Azerbaijan into Armenia. Once there, though, yeah, the Russian border guards who are already there would have a role to play in guaranteeing security for people uh, using that route. Go ahead. Right. Okay, yeah. That 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 helps clarify things. But yeah, like it, it go, you know, kind of goes back to what I said like our main goal should be at all costs to avoid being squeezed into agreeing to a corridor. I think that should uh, uh, it, above all, I think that should be our top priority to make sure that whatever concessions we are forced to make, that's not one of them. Because that is, in in my opinion, a threat to our national security. So the territorial integrity of Armenia is unquestionable. Um, Prime Minister Pashinyan has re- restated this numerous times that it's unquestionable that a corridor cannot be speak of, spoken of in, in those terms because that would put in question the territorial integrity of Armenia in that region. So I don't think there's anyone calling for that. The only people calling for that are the Aliyev regime and Azerbaijani irredentists or nationalists who are trying to continuously squeeze more and more gains out of Armenia after the November 9th agreement. Yeah. I think and, that, and, and, yeah, and if what that Sputnik article that I sent you is, says is accurate, then some elements within the Turkish government as well. Oh, there, oh, there's no doubt the Turkish government is interested in this. Uh, the Turkish government sees itself as a guarding and overseeing entity when it comes to the Nakhchivan enclave, oh, sorry, the exclave of Nakhchivan as it exists. And it would like to um, use its roads and ties with that exclave to connect it to the rest of Azerbaijan. It would love nothing more than to transport, you know, um, goods and equipment and anything you can imagine, people um, from from Udish to Nakhchivan to the rest of Azerbaijan by way of, you know, Zangilan border. Um, so, yes, I don't doubt whatsoever that Turkey is also interested in this. All of this can be very easily accomplished. Nothing is difficult here. All the groundwork, believe it or not, is actually already there by the terms of the CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States. 
um, if Armenia and Azerbaijan begin recognizing each other's citizens as members of the Commonwealth of Independent States. So if, if both Armenia and Azerbaijan return to their agreements and, and um, their commitments to the Commonwealth of Independent States, all the uh, former Soviet republics, besides a couple who you know aren't interested in it, are members of this organization. So the groundwork is already there. If an Azerbaijani citizen wants to enter Armenia, it can do so with the Commonwealth of Independent States status granted to it. It's really not possible at this point because of the war status. Um, they make decisions at the borders to deny people on an individual basis because they consider them a security risk. Uh, if that is eliminated, if that security risk can be eliminated, then there is nothing stopping people from um, normalized transportation across this border. And that is something that both sides should be working for. That is something that is beneficial for everybody. I, I would make an argument that potentially it's much more beneficial to Armenia than even Azerbaijan. Um, Azerbaijan is very interested in it, don't get me wrong, but normalized relations benefits Armenia much more in the long run, if you ask me, than it does either Turkey or Azerbaijan, who can survive much longer and much better if the borders remain closed as they have been for the last 30 years than Armenia can. But, what, uh, why do you say that? They, they uh, can survive much longer and much better with closed borders. Very easily. They have the resources. They have the economy. They have the demographics. They have the geopolitical position for all of oh, okay. that to happen. Okay, okay. I, I, I thought what you meant is, oh, okay, uh, never mind. I misunderstood what you said. I thought you were implying that they were they would be better off with closed borders than without than with open borders. Oh no no no! no. Oh, they okay. would be better off. They were just that? better off than <laughs> Armenia in those conditions. <laughs> yeah yeah okay. But it, yeah, it does yeah. benefit them as well. Absolutely, of course it benefits them, and it's good for everybody. Right. Well, what this I, is what, what I, I don't. This is what I. Sorry, just one more point. Uh, this okay. is what I really frustrates me is that people in this region don't understand that. Agreements can be mutually beneficial, right? Agreeing to things like this are mutually beneficial. Yes, they benefit your so-called eternal enemy, but they also benefit you. And you need to give up this idea that you're going to stomp and eliminate your enemy into non-existence. And therefore, anything that even benefits them remotely should be avoided. You right, need to right. stop that. You need to you need to take a much more constructive position. I don't mean you specifically, but I mean and, right, and right. most people in the region who are very unconstructive. They need to take a much more constructive position and understand that so many agreements can be reached that are mutually beneficial. That this region can pull itself back up from its bootstraps if only there was more cooperation instead of constant warring. Uh, that needs to be hammered home, I think, to most people who would even question an agreement that benefits the so-called other side. Right. I, I think um, I think the my uh, if I if I had the power to to to, control, to, to run things, 
or like if I had a say in the matter, my policy would be strictly one of survival. So like whatever mutually beneficial agreements need to be made that benefit us in the long run, I'll be willing to make. Um, and my only place where I'd be suspicious or my only thing is that, again, I would be very guarded in my negotiations. I would be very careful to not give too much in the way of concessions that might potentially come back to bite us in the butt later down the line. Like I wouldn't want to put us in a, in a Batum situation, (laughs) in a Batumi situation. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that we wouldn't necessarily be forced into something as extreme as Batumi, but the principle of what it stands for, which is Armenia being backed into very, very, very unfavorable, uh, agreements that effectively screw us you know that's what i would what my top priority would be to avoid uh, being backed into any to any kind of corners yeah uh, this is this is why armenia must do this with agreements and 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 willful choice than having these pan-turkic instincts in turkey and azerbaijan assert themselves to the point of just steamrolling Armenia. This is something that Armenia should want and support. Mm-hmm. Um, most, not, I shouldn't say most, a lot of Armenians believe that if there are better connections between Azerbaijan and Turkey, there are better connections between the Turkic world, this automatically equals the end of Armenia the overrun of Armenia, and I don't believe this whatsoever. I believe there can be a sovereign, healthy, stable, prosperous Armenia that is Armenian exactly the way it wants to be, with no compromise whatsoever, while still acting and being a a linking um, route for... Uh, Turkey to Azerbaijan and the rest of the Turkic world. There's nothing to fear there anymore. This isn't, you know, 1920 where, as you said, you know, the Treaty of Batum is being forced upon us because Turkey wants to control all of the rail lines that go Mm -hmm. through Armenia so that it can connect with Azerbaijan. There already were rail lines through Armenia to Azerbaijan. Many people don't realize this blows my mind. Yeah, well, but yeah. During the Soviet Union, yeah, yeah, there was the rail line from Kars to Gyumri to Tivlis to Baku. There was also the rail line from Kars to Gyumri to Yerevan to Nakhchivan to Baku. <laughs> there was two rail lines that passed through Armenia from Turkey. And on their way to Azerbaijan. This already existed. And when Armenia found itself in the winning position of the Nagorno-Karabakh war in its first iteration, Mm -hmm. one of the first things and unfortunate things that it ended up doing was it disassembled the rail line on the southern border of Armenia that connected Nakhchivan with the rest of Azerbaijan. I mean, I don't understand whatsoever what the forward-thinking perspective is on this. Did they imagine that they have solved the issue, that 
forever Nakhchivan will be disconnected from Azerbaijan? Are they hoping one day they're going to take over Nakhchivan, which is a very ridiculous uh, kind of a notion anyway at this point? Yeah. Um, so Armenia, in its militant wing, takes such drastic and radical steps as dismantling the rail line connecting you know, Nakhchivan with other people. It did yeah. this. And I, this needs to be reversed. Now is the yeah. time that this needs to be reversed, that needs to be rebuilt. Um, and there isn't anything mm-hmm. to fear about some kind of a conquest of Armenia. If there is to fear, which again, I don't believe there is, but if there is something to fear like that, then you know what? It's inevitable. You can't stop it anyway. So my point right. being, you need to work with it and use it for your advantage as much as possible. Right. Use that desire of these two states to have a connection for your own benefit. Very similar to what Georgia is doing. It has used it to its benefit. It has you know, built the Kars, Tivlis, Baku rail line and the gas line and the oil line. These are inevitabilities. Those lines should be through Armenia first and foremost rather than Georgia, but they are not because Armenia has chosen a path of isolation like it has. Armenia chose it because there were, you know, there were attempts during the Levante Pedrosian administration to create and, and, and reintegrate Armenia into these links if there would be a agreed upon and settled solution to Nagorno-Karabakh. And it was Armenia first and foremost that hijacked that process, especially by forcing the resignation of Levante Petrosian. But that's another topic, and that's also another long ago. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm very I'm, I'm big on for... not speaking... dwelling on the long ago and yeah. speaking of what was given to us. Because both you and I, both you and I were not at those tables. We were not adults back then to sit down and, and decide, you know, what was best for Armenia in 1998. Uh, but here we are now. Here we are now in this new generation. And we need to take what was handed to us and mm-hmm. make something better out of it than what the previous generation did. Right. I, um, I kind of... By the way, speaking of LTP, I'm I'm looking forward to speaking with them. Uh, I'm 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 actually going to be meeting with them when I go to Armenia next month. Oh, uh, cool! Month. Very uh, cool. I love to hear about that. Is it going to be anything you're going to either record or note down, write an article about, anything like that coming out of that? Um, I'm I'm considering it. Uh, the the way that I have the connection is that uh members of my mom's side of the family are I found out are actually related to him oh okay so I uh th- and they know him intimately so they can they can basically vouch for me um uh, anyway but I like his uh I like his approach I like his um the approach he was trying to take I mean Okay, this is why I think that I guess this defeat was kind of necessary because, you know, up until we we did lose, up until like the months leading up after the war, I didn't start to become more grounded in my understanding of things because during the war I was I was very, you know, like yeah, liberate Artsakh, you know, you know, very militant in that regard. 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to admit that. Um, in hindsight, I like LTP's approach, but, um, um, I would, I, okay. I think there are, um, I like LTP's approach when it comes to like normalizing ties with neighbors, but the only area where I would differ is for additional security while we're negotiating and hammering things out. I'm also very pro-military in terms of defense, not offense. So I would probably, if I was in the the prime minister's seat, one thing that I would focus on is, militarily speaking, turning Armenia into a fortress. Like, like cave digging cave systems, bunkers every which way. Like, uh, uh, yeah, basically turning, turning the entire like borders and mountains into like a type of Maginot line for additional security. Like, because even how did that, how did that work for the first Maginot line? <laughs> it didn't mm-hmm. work well. How did that work for the first Maginot line? <laughs> they just went around it. Man, you can't, you can't build a country that way. You can't make a country into a fortress. I mean, that's what that's what North Korea is trying to do, right? North Korea wants to make itself into a well, fortress, and well, okay. it believes it can be completely self-sufficient. Armenia can be much less self-sufficient than even North Korea can, and we shouldn't even be attempting that project whatsoever. I'm not saying we shouldn't have defense. I'm not saying we shouldn't have all kinds of precautions that guarantee our security and safety. Let's have all of that, but let's not use any of that to hide behind. Let's not use any of that to say, oh, we don't need to come to terms with Azerbaijan and, and, and Turkey and we can just live behind this fortress and no one's going to touch us, so screw them. You know, that's, no, that's yeah, not... No. Yeah. It, yeah, it's, yeah, for me, it's not a matter of not coming to terms and not negotiating. What I'm saying is I would at least like to put us in a position militarily where, where regardless of our attempts to negotiate, if there are like... if um, if uh, we find that Azerbaijan and Turkey do end up being unreasonable or whatever, I would like, I would feel more comfortable if we did have that backup so that <laughs> at least if, you know, heaven forbid we were to be attacked, you know, I, I, I would, you know, hope that we wouldn't be stupid enough to actually start shit. But heaven forbid if we were attacked i at least want to have us militarily strong to the point where we wouldn't just be steamrolled in 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 a, a week you know what i mean I like mean, i like, don't have any issues with having a decent security I, I i want all of that too but those can only be created in conditions of peace you could only yeah. start building that fortress if you were in peaceful times and armenia has yet to to be in peaceful times this is why, yeah. first and foremost, the goal should, yeah. should be for us to create peace and stability for Armenia. And then we could worry about backup plans Ooh. on the second and third and fourth degree level, you know? First and foremost, stabilize Ooh. the region, stabilize relations with the so-called enemy uh, entity, and create the conditions where life in Armenia can return to normal where people can finally feel that, you know, they're not in some imminent danger there, 
then you could begin at least to somehow create some kind of an economy, some kind of a, 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 a basis for, you know, pooling your resources and then worry about creating backup plans for backup plans mm. and so forth. Another another thing that I think would give us more leverage at the negotiating table is if is if in addition to opening up our eastern and western borders and getting getting all that going, um, I really hope the I really hope the EU is able to help us successfully complete the north to south corridor because. I feel like at least to some degree that gives us a greater lifeline so that we're not economically at the mercy of Turkey and Azerbaijan like like at like at any point if we if they want to like squeeze us they can you know close the borders again or something like um like I would like to like with at least with the north south corridor where we have like you know we're working with Iran more closely we're working with India uh, especially if if things go the way they are with Georgia, you know, improving ties with Georgia. Like, the way uh, I feel about that is Armenians are making way too much of that. <laughs> it's almost silly. Uh, the uh, the only way that you can act as some kind of a corridor for India or Iran would be for the goods to be transported through Armenia to Georgia, yet another state. And then through the Black Sea, which is restricted because of the Bosphorus Straits, they can already transport their goods from Iran to Turkey and immediately make their way to the Mediterranean and the rest of the world without having to go through yet another country and the Bosphorus Straits, which are completely you know, constricted at the moment. So I don't think this is any kind of a feasible lifeboat that most Armenians make it out to be. I want Armenia to have all the roads and all the connections possible. Absolutely. Let's build it all. But this isn't going to be some kind of a backbone of a trade network for India and Iran and Armenia benefiting from it. Just the geopolitics of Armenia are not built that way. And that's not how it's going to happen. So I don't have any kind of a, a, an urgency when it comes to the North-South Corridor. I think this is just more talk from unrealistic, completely out-of-touch Armenian ultra-nationalists and Armenian militants who think they can continue in isolation and closed borders with Turkey and Azerbaijan by uh, pushing forward projects like this and claiming that it will be some kind of a a, a saving, you know, lifeboat for Armenia. It won't be. Well, I mean, it. Um, why? Why are they? Um, um, if it's if it's already so easy to go through Turkey and the, the the Bosporus and all that, why are they even giving us this offer um, for the? So much of it, much of it has to do with China. It has to do with China's Belt and Road project. China is trying to create in, in all of Asia and even, you know, parts of Europe and Africa, mm -hmm. um, a, a vast trade network. And that vast trade network benefits um, China, first and foremost, because China has uh, land connections with these regions. Um, so for the trade network 
to to kind of prosper. China provides funding. It gets on board other states like Iran. Um, China's not very friendly with with India, but nonetheless, both India and China are friendly with Armenia. Uh, And so it's not that it would not be beneficial for everybody concerned. Once again, this is a mutually beneficial project. Yes, let's build that north-south corridor. But I stress again, it is not going to be some kind of high-traffic revenue, uh, extreme revenue, you know, bringing uh, enterprise for Armenia. It's not going to be anything like that. It'll be beneficial, just not to the point of completely reshaping and redefining the Armenian economy. It alone will not save Armenia. It, you know, it'll just be a drop in the bucket of what Armenia needs to do to save itself. And I think it's just mostly a distraction, as I said. It's a distraction that by people who don't want to open any kind of connection with Armenia and uh, and Azerbaijan and Turkey. They don't want this connection. And so they toss a bone. They toss us these distractions of a north-south corridor connecting Iran and India. Once you mention massive economies like India or China, all of a sudden, you know, it just seems like something significant. Wow. If we were to get some revenue from their trade, then we could save our country. Um, no, you won't. You won't be because they have so many alternatives. They already have corridors connecting them to anywhere you think Armenia would be connecting them to. They just want the Armenia corridor as yet another alternative, yet another choice, but it's not anything they're completely basing mm-hmm. their trade infrastructure on. I see. Yeah, I mean, what I would like to do, um, what I'd like to see is, Obviously, Armenia can't, you know, I don't think it could be completely self-sufficient. But, I mean, at the very least, I would like to see us be as self-sufficient as possible. Because, again, whenever I look at anything in terms of negotiation, I think leverage, 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 right? So, I feel like, I feel like... uh, there are certain types of dependencies that we can't avoid, which is why the borders need to be opened. But at the same time, uh, I think there are certain things like, for example, power. Like, okay, one of the reasons why I'm in, why I'm very pro-nuclear is because I feel like if Armenia was mostly nuclear-powered, and uh, by the way, I, I definitely think the Metsumar nuclear plant needs to be replaced with a newer and more up-to-date one. That thing is a time bomb. Um, anyway, but I support Armenia being as you know nuclear and power self-sufficient as possible because that's one less thing that they have on us. Like, oh, you need our gas lines, you need our oil sure, lines, or sure, whatever. Sure. Like, that's that one less have, thing. That- we have no disagreements on that whatsoever. Our vision is completely in line there. Armenia should remain nuclear power. It should do so by building a new power plant and phasing out the, as you called it, ticking time bomb, Metzamor nuclear power plant. Um, I read very recently news of very massive solar uh, plants being built in Armenia, which could potentially end up um, satisfying uh, half the needs, they said, of the Republic of Armenia. Half the needs or half the power of Metzamor's production, something like that. But nonetheless, (laughs) I think that... 
the, the, what you just pointed out right there is, I think, something that a lot of, that I think a lot of our ultra-nationalist ear uh, dentist friends fail to understand. Like, like very few people ever see, seek, uh, see the advantages in Armenia being as small as it is. <laughs> and one of those advantages yeah. is it's a lot easier to power the country versus yeah you can you can not only power the country you could export the power and armenia has on numerous occasions exported to georgia not only georgia and iran but also believe it or not on very rare occasions it's exported to turkey this has already happened yeah i've, I've heard so. even water is a possibility i, I went, in one interview i heard uh talking about possible water exports. Armenia and Turkey already have water agreements on the Ahurian and Arax rivers. There are a number of reservoirs uh, already built there. They have already delineated how much water gets, you know, to go on each side. And they have, for the most part, adhered to these, (laughs) even in these conditions of a closed border. Armenia and Turkey have been, believe it or not, when it comes to things like pot, water and power, have been pretty good neighbors, have been pretty decent mm-hmm. with each other. And I would right. like that to continue. That existed in Soviet times. That continues to a certain degree exist in independent right. times. And um, there is nothing stopping Armenia from uh, creating so much surplus power that it exports to regions of Turkey, like Kars, like Erdoğan, like you know various uh, border regions and even beyond. Um, and it could be true for other neighbors as well. We don't disagree. I mean, okay. we Armenia does not have oil. Armenia does not have gas, but oh. Armenia should have power. Armenia should generate as much power as it can. Oh. It should base its um, economy as much as is possible mm-hmm. on power, on electrical power. Yeah. Uh, and so that's not in question. I, I don't I don't contest that whatsoever. I don't I don't think that's an issue. But it's also not anything that stops Armenia from having better relations with Turkey and Azerbaijan. Right, right. My primary focus. This is what I want yeah. to argue here and today. Yeah. That Armenia can do all of that. Create all the electricity in the world, create all the corridors and super duper fast, well-built highways, you know, between mm-hmm. Georgia and Iran. Do them mm. at the same time with Have normalizing you. connections and relations mm-hmm. with Turkey and Azerbaijan. Right. And and I think I think this is where we're in basic, you know, basically in, in entire agreement. I, I think it we just it's just that you and I to some degree see things through different lenses. So I mean, you look at things in a much more broader way, which is good. We need that. Um, whereas, again, since I'm at least at this point in time on the more uh, suspicious and cynical side, I look at normalizing things in terms of I um it, like the more I look at every okay. I look at normalizing things in terms of leverage uh, that we can have. Basically, like I look at, <laughs> and 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 I'll admit, maybe I'm being narrow-minded. I'm I'm open to that possibility, but I I look at everything in terms of leverage. <laughs> like, what uh, leverage can Armenia have at this point, at this very point today, 
on yeah. Turkey or Azerbaijan. Right. None whatsoever. Well, right At one time, it believed it had some kind of a military leverage, military superiority. It had, you know, gained many, many territories in the first Karabakh war. So it had that leverage and it tried to use that leverage to negotiate a peace. But it became so greedy, so maximalist that eventually they left no choice but for Azerbaijan to take away that leverage, which is exactly what it did. And that is where we are today. Today, Armenia has almost no leverage. So I don't understand what leverage you want Armenia to have or create over Turkey or Azerbaijan. Well, I guess any leverage that ensures our continual existence. So for example, one example of leverage that I could see is if Armenia became uh, a manufacturer of some valuable good, like, um, like how Thailand manufactures the computer chip components um i think uh <laughs> if if we were to do that like like find some some very valuable commodity and start getting into that into that uh field into that territory of manufacturing that is leverage we have because it's not necessary okay when i say leverage i don't know, always mean leverage against them i i mean leverage for us like leverage that helps ensure our security so for example if we're if we have that manufacturing leverage we're a tight at least in that regard we're like a golden goose so armenia will never be competitive when it comes to manufacturing those days are long long gone first and foremost because uh, when it comes to manufacturing, East Asia, you know, China and Southeast Asia and many of these uh, countries in, in, in that particular part of the world, they mm-hmm. dominate worldwide manufacturing. The United mm-hmm. States manufacturing capacity is decimated, as you very well know, because both of you and I currently live in the United States. Right. And, and Armenia's fate is no different. It cannot compete when it comes to manufacturing. And even in that region, in that region, Turkey already has a very well-established, very big, very successful manufacturing sector. And Armenia, again, cannot compete with that sector. It needs to specialize in things that it can compete with. And I think, I personally believe that mm-hmm. any kind of large-scale manufacturing, at least meant to satisfy the demand of neighboring states, is futile. Mm-hmm. Armenia can manufacture on a small scale and do so for local needs, uh, but it can't do it for any kind of a large, significant uh, capacity, at least not in every, you know, every manufacturing uh, enterprise and, and segment. Mm. Um, believe it or not Armenia does actually have some some success in certain things for example it manufactures pharmaceuticals even exports some of it to Georgia not a lot of people know this so there are little things like that that could be built upon that could be improved and expanded but I wouldn't hang my hat on that. I wouldn't put my hopes, you know, on Armenia becoming some kind of a 
manufacturing haven in the region. It can't do that. It can't do that. It could do it in other sectors, I believe. I personally believe. Be that uh, IT, be that banking, be that finance, things like that. Armenia can have a very big say in. It has the know-how, the legacy to do all of that. Um, right. But that can only happen, and we spoke of this earlier, but that can only happen if Armenia is trusted by neighboring states it is a state that people want to do business with mm-hmm. then it can even think about exporting locally exporting you know whatever it produces uh, whatever it has specialized in and you know build itself a very decent very successful economy uh, in, in such a manner it mm-hmm. isn't doing any of that it doesn't have that trust it's completely isolated. It has very limited routes of export. And given those circumstances, man, you're not going to accomplish anything like what you're projecting Armenia could, could be for, for the region. Yeah, IT, IT is another thing. I guess what I'm trying to say is if we could provide a valuable enough service to, um, to surround, to, uh, all our neighbors, whether it's Turkey and Azerbaijan or whether that's Iran and Georgia, if we pr- okay, that if we pr- uh, provide some valuable service, whether that's banking and IT and stuff, if we can, you know, in- if we can stabilize things to the extent where we can do that, then so so f- I feel like that would give us some value, which would in- you know give us a level of protection. And then, um, and then, you know, as far as, you know, Turkey and Azerbaijan, if we're providing a valuable service, you know, you're not going to want to kill the goose that's producing golden eggs. Mm. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah. There's always that effect of, you know, a well-integrated region does not want to go to war, of course. Um, Yeah. And then. Something else that I feel okay before we finish up, I just want to touch on something real quick. Um, it's okay now, as someone who is you know, both of us love history and I am very invested in the preservation of the historical heritage in the region whether that's armenian or turkish or azri or whatever georgian so do you think and i'm very cynical but maybe you could change my mind about this but do you think there's any hope in preserving the monasteries and other landmarks in Artsakh? Or are they pretty much doomed to being vandalized and demolished? They will not be demolished, in my opinion. Um, Azerbaijan actually itself believes there's value to them. Um, They wouldn't want the the bad PR. But besides even that, uh, that is an asset for tourism for themselves. So I don't think they will demolish. But as often we see, you know, they will subject them to historical revisionism, reinterpretation, and many times pseudo-history. 
that most likely will happen. But given those conditions, if the physical destruction is limited and all they do is post shitty, you know, signs at the, at the monastery right. of, of bad history, which you know happens in, in places like Ani, uh, while still preserving the architecture, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm okay with it, I guess, at this point. Um, it's the, the best of possible worlds. Um, I don't know, man. Like, given what happened to the cemetery, to the Khashkars of Ganja, um, in you mean the Khashkars of um, not Ganja, uh, Julfa, the Khashkars, Julfa. Sorry, sorry, no, no, uh, I don't know why I was thinking of Ganja. No, yeah, Julfa. Yeah, given what happened to the Khashkars of Julfa, and in addition, I've heard that like something like. Uh, 60 to 80 medieval Armenian churches have actually been demolished in Azerbaijan. All of that has happened. I've asked this question a number of times to Azerbaijani friends and um, acquaintances, and mm-hmm. they try to explain to me that Nachchivan sort of functions as its own little kingdom, <laughs> and the leadership of Nachchivan is extremely radical, extremely tyrannical. Um, e- even even more than than the Aliyev regime. Correct, believe it or not. Really? <laughs> yes. Really. And so uh, they they wouldn't much they wouldn't expect much else than such atrocious behavior out of such leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, they they try to kind of uh, they try to make me understand that that shouldn't mean that that represents what will happen in the rest of Azerbaijan. Uh, but but isn't I it kind of yeah, isn't it in the rest of Azerbaijan where the church the, those 80 churches and stuff were demolished? No. I, well I don't, I don't know what you're talking about specifically, huh. but the okay. the churches I thought you were mentioning were demolished in Nakhchivan itself. Oh okay. Yeah. Okay, well it, okay, if it's honestly if that's the case then fine, fuck man. Call them Caucasian, Albanian, whatever. If if lying about them means you preserve them, I mean, don't, don't, yeah, don't call them that. But if yes, as you said, if if calling them that makes you feel better, so that you preserve them, okay, call them that for now, and then just, we'll we'll fix just, that nonsense just, later. <laughs> okay, but I also feel okay. There was articles talking about how Aliyev was like going to the churches after the war, looking at the Armenian inscriptions and yes. going, "These need yeah. these need to be." Yes, sick. I've seen the videos. I've seen the videos. He points to the Armenian inscriptions. He not only says these need to be fixed, he says these are forgeries, these are fakes, the Armenians and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, Aliyev is is very destructive in terms of Armenian history because he has completely bought in, you know, lock, stock, and barrel into uh, Azerbaijani pseudo history. He puts it forward to the point of amusement for even many uh, Azerbaijani civilians who, who don't agree with it and, and know how ridiculous it is. But nonetheless, he has the entire state apparatus pushing that for. I know it's very dangerous, but at, at, at this point, um, Armenia can't concern itself with changing any of that. There's nothing we can do. Well, um, I guess we, I guess we, where I can take solace... Um, um, I guess the only I guess the only place to solace here is that there are photographs taken of these inscriptions and stuff. Yeah. For posterity. <laughs> yeah, um, at least there's that. This is not the you know the early twentieth century where 
people could reinvent these things and there isn't much evidence left to um, disprove their bullshit. Yeah, go ahead. A lot of Armenians have said that this is where I'm interested in hearing like your your take on things. A lot of Armenians have said that if uh, <clears throat> um, Azerbaijan does successfully vandalize the churches and propagate this thing by the next generation or in the next couple of generations, the ma- they can convince the majority of the world um, that these are in fact Caucasian Albanian and that Armenians were not there until the 19th century. Uh, no, they can't. The, stop, they can't. stop. That's silly. Yeah, silly. Yeah, because I was about, I was always saying that because I was just saying, like, look. I don't believe that because they um, they they must think so low of international scholarship that, it, <laughs> that they think yeah. all it would take was some despotic government to reinvent shit and all of a sudden all the academics fall in line. Not that don't you know many governments don't try and many governments haven't bought out uh, scholars and academics. All of that has happened, but at the end of the day, the process sees its way through and what is reality, what is closest to truth finds its way to the top. Mm-hmm. And that, that also would happen when it comes to that. So I uh, there's, there's nothing really to fear. And I would dare go further and say, Armenians should not be so obsessively concerned so much about history to the yeah. point of, ignoring the present and the future right, so, right. The, the only reason i brought it up is because um i'm a history enthusiast so both you and i of course i yeah, care I about I the history should be at the top of the agenda for politicians in armenia but i'm saying that's like, right for, for me like who is going to get a history degree like i want to learn you know classical armenian and like other you know old languages like that is something i mean aside from political ambitions that is history is something that i want to pursue so it is a concern for me that's that's the only reason i brought it yes just history should not be politicized history should not be used as a bludgeon to beat your opponents into submission um history should be left to scholarly academic and intellectual pursuits and yeah um and then which brings me to the last thing i'm going to say before i jump off uh, um so just to kind of give the audience an overview of the the what i mentioned at the beginning of this discussion the um <clears throat> the caucasian <clears throat> caucasian anatolian history textbook project um which is basically this idea that i have to get together history enthusiasts like you yours truly and yourself um as well as people from as well as uh, turks and azeris and georgians and any other you know uh, ethnic groups of our region ala lesbians and talish sorry not talish um, yeah the, the people of our region yazidis um and basically write a balanced well okay we'll start out by general education like blog articles uh, youtube videos but eventually with the consultation of professional historians to create a series of 
textbooks for various grade levels that can be translated into the languages of the surrounding countries and used by them um hopefully by the next generation when they or you know maybe in a couple decades when things have calmed down try to push for it it's yeah basically it's something that's never been done before i don't think which is yeah having the diff- the regional countries use a balanced non-politicized history textbook yeah but their governments would have to agree to that most of yeah. which will not do because they are not balanced they are extremely ultra nationalistic and would like to redefine <laughs> everything right. within their the terms of their national identities nonetheless yeah. it's a very important project to at least be put out there and exist as yeah, some kind like, of an like, alternative. It should exist for, for sure. No doubt about it. That should exist even if it's not chosen as the textbook of choice. Um, yeah, and, just, and, and that way, that way, like, if there are, if in the future there are, like, you know, these more, um, you know, these more moderate governments in in the region, it could be, like, like, okay, well, what do we do to, you know, properly teach history? They look into, oh, here's this project that this group, this group of people have been working they on. They will for. be attacked all along the way. Don't get, <laughs> don't get it wrong. They will be attacked <laughs> if they even consider this book of yours. But nonetheless, if they, if they have the proper positioning and proper argumentative skills, maybe they might be able to push it through. Uh, and, and, and again, that, that should not be a hindrance to it existing it should definitely exist and yeah i support your project um, and and and, and at the bring at, it to at, fruition at the very least i'm hoping to at least make it you know big enough on the internet to attract people from our region and even people from outside our region there's uh, always the internet yeah that's, that's also true yeah so, so at least at least it could be like one haven where the different sides can come together and discuss these historical yeah. topics <laughs> yeah yeah, there, there's all these institutions called, you know, the Caucasus History Institute or whatever, uh, and almost every single one of them are nationalist or ultra-nationalist to one degree or another. Yeah. So uh, I, I would more than support an actual, you know, rigorous, attempt. nuanced attempt at a, a history writing of the South Caucasus or Caucasus in general. That, that sounds yeah. lovely. Okay, well, um, I, I got to jump off. It was, it was good talking to you, Sako, <laughs> and hopefully we'll speak again. All right, sounds good, brother. Looking forward to it.